You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. My guest today on the Freedom Pact podcast is Siddharth Kara, author of the upcoming book, Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. This is a slightly different episode um, for this podcast. We primarily um, cover personal development topics, but sometimes there are uh, stories and causes that uh, that I come across that I think that why wouldn't I use my platform to try and spread this awareness? And when I came across your work, it was one of those um, moments for me. And I thought I have to try and do my part here as well. And so I'd like to sort of start off by trying to get everyone's attention who, you know, they may be thinking, they might have clicked on this episode and they might be thinking, why is this relevant to me? The statement I would put out there is that by me recording this podcast and just by you know, just by the virtue of someone listening right now or watching on any device they may be watching on, at the very top of that supply line is are the are the slavery, are the lives, are the suffering of many people in the Congo, and that's why I think people should be uh, paying attention to this episode. Do you think that's a fair statement to make? A absolutely. Uh, right in this particular moment, everyone who's listening to you and I speak. Um, is unwittingly participating in um, uh, a colossal uh, human rights and environmental catastrophe in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And the reason I say that is uh, almost every single lithium-ion rechargeable battery made in the world today, so every smartphone, tablet, laptop, uh, and crucially, just about every electric vehicle has a mineral called cobalt, in the battery um, and roughly three fourths of the world's supply of cobalt is mined in a small little patch of the southeastern Congo in these appalling conditions, which we can talk more about. Um, so that's why, yes, this touches the lives uh, of everyone, everyone listening now. And in fact, people like you and I uh, across the world can't really function on a day to day basis without cobalt. There was a a quote I heard you say um, on your interview on the Joe Rogan experience, and I thought this is a really powerful quote to try and grab everyone here. And you said, in the history of slavery, in the history of slavery, there's never been more suffering that generated more profit and was linked to the lives of more people around the world than there is going on in the Congo right now. And I think that that might shock a lot of people, um, just to put into perspective how deep this actually goes. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, that's exactly right. Um, if you look across the entire long arc of the history of slavery, and there are many appalling episodes um, of inhumanity uh, and, and violence, um, never, never uh, across all the centuries, millennia, eons, uh, north, south, east, and west, never has there been a single chain in which there was more degradation, suffering, and exploitation taking place that generated more profit 
at the top of that value chain and touch the lives of more people around the world than, than what is happening right now in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people are grinding themselves to, uh, 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 to death, uh, scrounging out toxic cobalt out of the ground, feeding it up, to, up the chain to mega cap tech and EV companies around the world that are worth trillions. And these people scrounging it out of the ground earn maybe a dollar, two or three, if they're lucky, per day, uh, feeding it up the chain to companies that are worth trillions of dollars. You can't even uh, uh, count the number of zeros on their profit statements each quarter. Uh, and as we said, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people around the world can't function on a day-to-day -day basis without cobalt. So that, that chain, this touches everybody. Um, you can't um, you can't check social media, you can't have a phone call, uh, check your email, do work, um, any number of things, and increasingly drive around town in an electric car um, without cobalt. So in terms of those people that are, that are affected, just to put a perspective on um, their situation in life, a lot of these people who find themselves scrounging around and digging and really get suffering for this cobalt what position are they in to where they've found themselves in that place do they have many other opportunities or is this simply the only way for them well so let's orient ourselves we're in the southeastern part of the democratic republic of the congo an area that uh, was historically called katanga and the congo is one of the poorest countries on the planet it has been um suffering through violence, disease, civil strife, invasions, displacement uh, for generations. Uh, and before that, uh, um, colonialism. And one of, the, one of the most appalling King Leopold uh, of Belgium. Uh, so since independence in 1960, people have been uh, uh, grindingly poor uh, and suffering through violence uh, and strife in the Congo. Um, so they're already at the precipice, okay? Then um, uh, enter the modern era and that part of the Congo that I mentioned, that southeastern part, happens to be sitting on some of the largest reserves of some of the most important metal, metals and minerals uh, needed uh, for the global economy. And big mining companies came in, took over massive swaths of territory um, to extract uh, copper, nickel, uh, tin, gold, zinc, and uh, in the last 12 years, cobalt. Um, and so when I say big swaths of territory, the largest mining concession in the Congo is about the size of greater London. Okay, so you have to imagine there would be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that were living on that territory. Suddenly they're kicked off um, and can't fend for themselves. Uh, have no other alternate livelihood. Now, multiply that several times over with numerous mining concessions, and you have a population of people displaced, no alternative except to try to go back onto the land that they used to live on to try to dig out those minerals that the big mining companies have come from. Uh, and for that, they're paid a dollar or two a day, as I said, feeding these invaluable metals uh, and minerals up the chain. And just to, to to paint a picture here, what in terms of the conditions, to what extent are the dangers they're facing? Are they fatal in terms of you know a, a lives at risk? Uh, unquestionably, 
uh, first and foremost, cobalt is highly toxic to touch and to breathe. And all of these people, uh, women, children, babies on their mother's backs, men and boys are being exposed to toxic cobalt every day through their skin and inhaling toxic cobalt dust. So there's a pandemic of um, public health catastrophe taking place that no one talks about. People getting uh, acute dermatitis, heavy metal lung disease that results in fatalities, cancers, respiratory ailments, uh, neurological problems. Now, the ore, the stone that has cobalt in it, typically has some copper, nickel, and oftentimes small traces of radioactive uranium. And again, so they're getting radiation exposure, uh, uh, digging the stuff out of the ground. So just that part of it, the toxic exposure is uh, alarming. Now add to that the conditions. So they're digging this by hand, shovels, pickaxes, and rebar. Um, uh, digging into pit walls. Pit walls collapse and can shatter a person's leg, arms, uh, or even bury them. Um, there are a lot of tunnels that are being dug by hand, thousands of them, because slightly deeper underground, you have slightly higher grade um, sources of cobalt, which means maybe you earn three or four or five dollars that day instead of one, two, or three. These tunnels have no ventilation shafts, they do not have supports, and they collapse. And when they collapse, everyone who's in there is buried alive. So this is the magnitude of injury, insult, contamination, and death being suffered by the people of the Congo to feed three-fourths of the world's supply of cobalt into our hands. It's crazy to think when you when you describe those conditions at the top of the supply line and you and you follow it all the way through, you get to some of these, the biggest companies in the world. I mean, not just to, to pinpoint any particular, but I mean the biggest, you know, your Apples, your Samsung, you know, the biggest companies in the world. And if you trace this far back enough, this is, you know, this is what they're profiting off of. It's not something you would normally, well, you'd hope wouldn't be the case, but you hear a lot about clean cobalt. And, and is that, is there any substance in that, or is that just pure marketing spin? It's marketing. There's no clean cobalt. Um, and I'll tell uh, it's particularly coming out of the Congo, unquestionably. Um, uh, but I don't think any company can, uh, at the top of the chain, can reliably claim that any cobalt used in any of their products, be it smartphones or laptop or electric vehicles, is clean. The reason I say that is this. Um, most of the cobalt, which is, of course, in a raw or crude form, has to be refined before it can be used in batteries. And most of that refining takes place in China. China um, supplied roughly 80% of the world's commercial-grade refined cobalt um, last year. Um, and then there's a handful of other countries that also re refine cobalt. Um, and everything that flows through China is predominantly coming out of the Congo, and even if there's re, uh, cobalt that maybe, let's say, is coming out of Australia or Morocco, it, it in, isn't highly likely to still be refined in China. So all that cobalt gets mixed up. You can't disaggregate Congo cobalt from Australia cobalt from Morocco cobalt when it's mm -hmm. all dumped in the same vat of acids to be refined. And then it goes into the battery. Um, it's like if you were to sort of stand at the mouth of uh, the Thames River and say, I can discriminate. Um, which tributaries and streams the water is coming from. It, it, you, right? it's, a, it, it's a fallacy. It's a marketing fallacy in this case. Mm -hmm. um, that's not to say that um, cobalt 
the chain cannot be improved. And that's the point of all this. Let's pay attention to the horrific conditions on the ground. Um, let's uh, remedy the suffering and uh, injury uh, and an environmental damage we're talking about um, uh, and make this a more dignified, reasonable supply chain. I'm willing to bet that if we were sat here now on this Zoom call with a third party, maybe a top exec at one of these these companies we've discussed, that they'd either find a way to try and spin this, or if we presented them with just the most undeniable evidence that they would almost play dumb and maybe say that they weren't aware. Just how aware are the big tech companies? Do they know exactly what's going on to the detail? Uh, you, you put your finger right on the probably the sequence of arguments they would try to use. Mm. Um, you know, the first thing, no, no, I, bu I buy from that mine over there and that mine is clean. Yeah. And so then someone like me or maybe even dare say someone on the ground in the Congo, if they bothered to actually go there and talk to people, would say, no, no, there are thousands of artisanal miners digging in that in industrial mine. They've been invited there because they boost production at penny cost. Yeah. So let's not talk about that mine is clean. Oh, well, I didn't know. Okay, right. Um, let's be charitable. We can say maybe they aren't aware of um, the scale and severity of what's happening, but they know what's happening. Mm. Okay. Um, and it's frankly their job to know what's happening because it's their supply chain. It's not your supply chain. It's not my supply chain. It's their supply chain. Uh, so it's their job to know what's happening all the way on their supply chain. You can't plead ignorance um, to a sequence or chain of events that you initiate. You start a ball rolling, you own it all the way down to the bottom where it stops. Yeah. Uh, so you can't say, well, I didn't know it was doing all these bad things as it rolled downstream, right? So they should be there on the ground, seeing the bottom of their supply chain firsthand. Um, if they claim, well, we didn't know, um, now they do. And when my book comes out, for sure, everyone will. But I'm not the first person who's been talking about this. There have been journalists getting down there, NGOs, um, uh, raising this issue for many, many years. So they know there are problems there. Uh, maybe not every last little detail, but they know that there's enough of a problem that they should have been dealing with it. This may sound like a silly question because I, I, I'm not too sure how these things work. I'm happy to admit that. But for these companies, who is supposed to be holding them accountable for things like these? Is there like an external body or is it just done internally? Right now it's self-governance. I mean, you know, there's there's really no strong external body, um, particularly a one with any sort of persuasive force um, or legislative force um, that could hold them to account. Uh, I think those changes are coming. Uh, there are laws being passed. There is a movement in human rights uh, to us to, uh, assign a more strict sense of liability and accountability to companies all the way down their chain. And the reason is that the reasonably, reasonably foreseeable outcome of not holding a company accountable for its supply chain is exactly what's happening in the Congo. Mm. No one takes responsibility. And then, of course, at the underbelly of the global economy, horrible things happen to vulnerable poor people. Um, so companies have to be held to account. It will be probably a mix of legislative pressure uh, as well as consumer pressure and then ultimately hopefully um, some self-governance from these companies uh, when when there's enough pressure applied to them 
So I'd just like to take this down the direction of your personal sto story. I mentioned at the top that you're an author, you've written you know, a, a good few uh, successful books at this point, all around the topics of modern slavery, child trafficking. Why are these issues so important to you? And, and what led you down this path to want to shed light on topics like this? Yes, well, um, you know, it goes back many, many years. I've been traveling the world for uh, more than 20, 22 years now, um, largely on a self-supported basis to research slavery and child labor. Um, the seeds were planted actually when I was an undergraduate student um, in the um, early 90s. Um, I uh, put together a project to volunteer in refugee camps in the former Yugoslavia, um, which at the time was falling apart, um, uh, the Balkan crisis at that time. And I, so I spent the summer um, of 94 in a Bosnian refugee camp, and I had all these um, ideas of what I was going to do to help. And I got there and realized it was, um, I was out of my depth um, as just a 19-year-old kid. And these were huge problems, huge forces I was not equipped to deal with or even understand. Um, but the one thing I could do was listen. Um, and so I listened to the refugees because no one was listening to them. They were crying out into a world that was not paying attention. Uh, so I was there and I could listen and I listened to their stories. I listened to the, the horrors they had suffered. Uh, and I heard stories again and again of uh, Serbian soldiers who came into Bosnian refugee camps, executed men and boys, rounded up women and girls and took them off to rape camps and brothels and uh, across the region. And I had never heard anything like that. It just kind of short-circuited my mind. Um, anyway, skip ahead uh, to the late 90s. I was working as an investment banker in New York and wondering what do I really want to do with my life? And the, the, um, the experience from that refugee camp never sort of left me. And I started looking around, you know, are these things still happening? And I saw some reports about human trafficking and so on. And I thought to myself, you know, Maybe I can make a contribution here. Um, I couldn't do much when I was a kid other than listen. Maybe I can, um, with a few more years under my belt, make a contribution. So um, I, I made a decision in the summer of 2000. I, I left and took my first research trip, five months traveling around, just trying to listen and learn in South Asia, Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia. And I'll tell you candidly, I thought, okay, I'll realize once again, these are bigger problems, you know, child trafficking and slavery bigger problems that smarter people need to deal with. But I was so consumed and overwhelmed by what I encountered that during that trip that I redirected literally the course of my life and uh, planned my next trip and my next trip without knowing what would come of it. But I just had faith that I would find a way to make a contribution. Does it bring you personally a lot of purpose and meaning, your work? Oh, unquestionably. Um, it's hard work. Uh, but I can't imagine what else I would do with myself at this point. Um, and the reason I say that is, you know, whenever I'm in the field and I, let's say I'm in the Congo and I'm meeting, you know, uh, a mother who's lost a child or a, a, a father whose son had his leg shattered and a pit wall collapse, you know, all for a few dollars a day. Um, and I'm listening to them and I'm trying to take down their truth and bring that to the world as best I can. Um, what drives me is the fact that uh, if I were them, what would, what would I want? Hmm. And I would want that someone somewhere would listen. 
would would just see us, see me, and listen. Um, that I wasn't again crying out into silence, into this blackness and darkness. That there was there was an ear at the other end with some compassion. So um, now, if I would want nothing more than that, just to know that someone could see and hear me, then isn't that the very least I can do mm. um, to be that person? Uh, I can't solve all these problems. I you know I don't have the power or influence uh, resources to do it, but I can at least. Um, bring attention and amplify those voices to the world and the world is full of people who have immense compassion and care and want to solve these problems and band together to do so and that's how change has always happened um some voice someone hears it and brings it to a world that cares and has compassion and then and then it goes from there um and for these people when they speak to someone like you from a way more privileged part of the world. Does it really put into perspective just how bad this situation is? Because I imagine, for the, especially for the young people who are in that situation, and they've grown up only knowing this environment, they may not know what life should look like. Yes. Um, it's, you know, the thing about, I've been to a lot of very dangerous, poor, um, disadvantaged, places and you know there's there's just nothing i've seen and i've been more than 50 countries across the global south um uh i've never encountered anything quite as degrading and impoverished um as, as what i saw in the congo and uh it's like it's another planet mm. and, and that's kind of what's so jarring because on the one hand the people who are living there are intimately connected to us. I mean, they pass a stone into a sequence, a, a, a value chain that ends up allowing us to function on a day-to-day -day basis. So they're intimately connected to us. On the other hand, if you were to look at them in their world, like on the right side of the pain, and then a, a picture on the left side of the pain of us in our world, you'd be like, this has to be two different planets. These two extremes, you know, High Street and London can't exist on the same planet as the mining provinces of the Congo. And yet they're intimately linked, right? Um, and, and so that's what's kind of so jarring. So down there, it's impossible for people there to understand and fathom that there's this other world where smartphones are $1,000. I mean, that's like a decade of income for people, Yeah. right? Uh, let alone a car, electric car, that's $100,000. Uh, but let's even go deeper than that. Just that there's running water and electricity in our world. Um, rough, I mean, roughly 10 or 12% of the Congo is electrified. And, and in rural areas, it's not even 1%. So just things we take for granted, like a light switch and a hot and cold water and a toilet. You know, there's there's none of that there. So their world is so radically um, disadvantaged and different from ours and yet couldn't be more crucial to the world we live in so just for i'm sure the many readers of the book and those listening to you on on podcasts and, and those sharing these stories for the first time it, it's going to be you know really jarring perspective changing information but for for someone like you and you know the reporters you've you've mentioned who've been trying to bring this to the forefront what has that been like to process witnessing all this firsthand i know you mentioned that it's hard work in terms of you know it's physical hard work but it must be emotionally hard work for you as well 
Yeah, it's it 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 yeah. Of course, it can be very debilitating emotionally. Um, you know, to to absorb and bear witness to that magnitude of human misery. I mean, people who bang their chests and cry out in grief. You know, it's it's uh, it's uh, it's shattering. I mean, utterly shattering. Um, but you know, I I am never asked to endure anything that's even a fraction of a fraction of a percent in in misery than what they've been asked to endure. So there's really not space for me to, you know, pity myself or feel bad or feel overwhelmed or burnout or whatever, because on any given day, every minute, every second, every microsecond of that day, my life is immeasurably uh, more privileged uh, than, than theirs. And they would change places with people like you and me uh, in a nanosecond. Um, uh, so yes, it's hard, and yes, it can be you know deeply disturbing um, and draining. But boy, there's just no room to for self pity um, because, as I said, my life is always infinitely better than anyone in the Congo. We mentioned that that this has been information that that really hasn't been brought to the forefront until recent years. How heavily guarded are these secrets, and and what sort of resistance did you face personally and, and those you may know have done similar uh, work whilst trying to report on this? Yes, the, look, the mining provinces are heavily militarized because there's a lot of money at stake. Uh, and there's a whole range of different forces of people with, with Kalashnikovs and machetes. There's the formal army, uh, the FARDC. There's a Republican Guard, which is the elite military force that reports directly to the uh, to the president of the Congo. Um, there are mining police, and then there's all kinds of informal little militias and quote unquote private security and commandos, and they're uh, all over the mining provinces, um, uh, securing them, guarding them, um, keeping prying eyes out, uh, because the 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 reality is no one up the chain. Will Um, it is, um, it is by design kept under a shroud of, um, uh, darkness, misinformation, um, uh, and, and people aren't supposed to know the truth because there's, again, too much money at stake. So navigating and walking around the mining provinces, trying to gain access to certain mines is obviously always challenging. It's always risky. Um, uh, I was blessed to have uh, extraordinary and courageous colleagues on the ground without whom I couldn't have done any of this work, obviously. Um, there are some places where it took a lot of effort to get into, um, uh, and there are some mines that I never got into, despite all the effort. Um, they're just too heavily guarded. But what I would do then is talk to workers uh, 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 who worked at those mines in the, at home, in their villages, or you know, uh, at the end of the day. Uh, in a safer space. Um, but there's some extraordinary scenes I saw, places I got into, and, you know, I shared a video on that Rogan podcast of one of the mines, and you think, wait, what millennia are, am I in? That, that This is, you know, thousands upon thousands of, in that case, men and boys just clanking and hammering uh, with raw, brute human force uh, to chisel a mountain of cobalt into pebble size uh, to dump in sacks and, and flow up the chain. So, uh, it's it is very dangerous. It is very secured and militarized. It's like that in no small part because the Congo is such an, a violent and insecure place. There are militias everywhere. 
um, scrambling for valuable territory and what's under the under the surface. Uh, and that little patch of the Congo that I keep returning to, that part that's called used to be called Katanga, uh, that's 70 or 80 percent of the government's income. So they have to keep that place secure as, as possible. Were you surprised you managed to 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 gain access to to to, to a mine and, and see that with your own eyes? Did did you think that was even possible? And and whilst you were there, did you feel unsafe? You know, going into my first trip, I, I didn't really know what to expect in terms of you know what kind of access I would even be able to get and who would want to talk to me. Um, you know, I had the benefit of uh, at that point eighteen years of field research and to slavery and child labor in a lot of dangerous places. So, you know, I knew how to build ground relationships and trust, um, but I had no idea what it would be like. Um, and as I said, it took, a, you know, repeated trips, uh, a lot of uh, persistence, a lot of care and caution uh, to get into some of these areas to, to bear witness to what was happening. But, but crucially, and most importantly, to listen to the testimonies of the people living and working and dying for a COBOL, mm. because this, it's their truth. Um, uh, it's not, it's not about what I saw, uh, uh, and relay back to people in, in my book. It's the truth of the people in the Congo, um, uh, that's important for the, for the broader world to hear. And yeah, there was a lot of times when I was in danger, um, and had to be very careful despite all best efforts and caution. Um, uh, I, I recount one episode in my book, um, uh, because again, the book's not about me, but I do recount one episode where... You know, we made all the efforts to ensure there were no militia movements in this area we were going to, um, where there were children, hundreds of children working and digging uh, in pretty uh, atrocious conditions to dig out cobalt. And um, I was there, we're talking to some children, and, you know, suddenly there were just gunshots from the, uh, from the horizon. And, you know, I turned around and there was like... Uh, uh, this sort of little commando unit, as they call themselves, which is really just a bunch of guys with Kalashnikovs and machetes who were charged with keeping people out of this area where there were children working. Um, and the children were working and digging for a specific mining company. Um, and they sort of charged us, me and my guide, uh, roughed me up, threw my stuff on the ground, demanded my phone, wanted to see if I had taken pictures um, uh, of what was happening. And I had been advised... Uh, on my first trip that the difference between um, a very bad outcome or survival would be to make sure I got um, a stamp and signature from a, a government official in the governor's office. Um, that I could present that uh, and that stamp indicated I was under the support and protection of the governor's office. And so I did, I did that on my first trip and with each trip um, and my guide at the time, I mean, I thought that was it, uh, but he said, you know, he told me quietly, stay calm, take out your piece of paper. It's called engagement de prise en charge, a commitment to support. And I pulled out the, of, a, of a commando at the time, my older. I took it out and showed it to them and they saw it. And, you know, that was enough that they made them think for just a minute. Um, and so they just kind of roughed us up and shoved us out of the area. But, you know, had a guide not told me that that was something I needed to get, I would never have known. Um, uh, and of course, that particular encounter could have gone uh, a different way. Absolutely. And, you know, something like that would, you know, that it must have been so, so scary. If this work wasn't so um, providing you with so much meaning and purpose, that would have been enough to, to turn anyone away. 
well, no question. I mean, I, I, I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute, is this it? This like random hill in the middle of nowhere? Uh, um, and there were some other incidents like that and similar to that one. Um, um, but it's, you know, people need to know what's happening. And if if what I've done and 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 the book I've written and the voices I'm hoping the world will hear, if that ultimately helps uh, inspire efforts by the global community um, to to remedy this just subhuman uh, old world ugly dark exploitation that's taking place in the 21st century um uh, you know then it's all all worth it it's worth it regardless because i know there are people who felt immense um power and uh um catharsis in being able to speak you know that that they're so powerless otherwise but just being able to speak and know someone was listening you know even that uh, is worth it was worth it to me absolutely amazing just one or two questions as we start to wind down now um obviously something like this is never just gonna it's never just gonna go away overnight and you know there there's so many intricate parts to different solutions breeding into this but what are the solutions here that the 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 realistic solutions here in trying to to marry you know this demand with fair conditions sustainability what are the first steps that the world needs to take First step is the companies atop the chain need to accept responsibility for their chains. Mm. They all say that they do. They all release press statements about zero tolerance policies on child labor and that they adhere to human rights standards all the way down their supply chains to the mining level. They always say to the mining level. Um, so the first thing that needs to happen is they just simply need to do the things they say that they're doing. And that is accepting responsibility and ensuring dignity and sustainability all the way down the chain. Now, what are those specific things? Well, there's a lot of low hanging fruit that would reduce an immense amount of suffering and harm very quickly. Uh, simply giving these people PPE, some gloves, some masks, some goggles, some, uh, uh, work attire so that they're not breathing in and handling toxic substances day in and day out, uh, paying them a decent wage, paying adult workers a decent wage. And by that, I mean something along the lines of maybe 10 to $12 a day, right? A dollar an hour, let's say, mm. instead of two or $3 a day. But that's the difference between um, survival and being able to keep children in school versus needing children to come work just so the family can survive. Uh, and they wouldn't notice that cost. Yeah. They, it's not even a rounding error on their balance sheets. Uh, $10 a day versus $3 a day. Mm. Um, formalizing the bottom of the supply chain, you know, letting there be contracts and uh, uh, mechanisms for grievance and redress, um, being on the ground to, to document and uh, uh, inspect their supply chains. Has any CEO of any tech or EV company anywhere in the world ever stepped foot in the Congo to see their cobalt? I doubt it. Not one of them. They're all billionaires on account of the cobalt. 
surely they could take a week out of their lives to go down there and just spend a week looking around, talking to people. If they think, think it's complicated, I'll take them. I'll do it for them. I'll make all the arrangements. It, it, it's not that hard. Um, and surely, as I said, they could spend a week. Just come down, come with me. I'll take you. You can meet your Congolese employees. And then once you see the truth and can't deny the truth, then let's, let's do some of these little things. How about you avail of these communities, their resources, their build a few public health clinics, do a few little things that help support uh, the safety and well-being and development of these communities. It's not their fault. They happen to be sitting on more than half of the world's supply of cobalt, but it's everyone else's fault up the chain that they're being treated in a subhuman disposable manner because they happen to be sitting on top of this cobalt. So all of that, it's just simple things that would help reduce um, most of the harm and injury uh, that's being caused. The other element that needs to be addressed is all the mining companies down there, um, they don't operate on a sustainable basis they would in their home countries. You know, they dump toxins everywhere. They clear cut trees, millions of trees without planting any in to replace them. And, and they wouldn't be able to do that in their home countries. Uh, so why is it okay to do it in Central Africa? Uh, so little things like that. Just behave there as you would here. Treat them there as you would treat your people here. It's not complicated. It's just a matter of wanting to do it. I think I could speak for everyone listening um, when I say it feels really uncomfortable to know, like, like we said, that every time you turn on your phone, every time I turn on this podcast equipment, that is essentially powered by the, you know, the deaths of, of, of slaves. Now, it's unrealistic of us to maybe ask people to, to, you know, to, to give up their devices or boycott these big companies. Of course, we're not saying that. But what would you encourage the people listening right now who feel really uncomfortable, who feel like they want to do something? What would you encourage the everyday person do to help combat this problem? Yeah, uh, look, it's not up to you and me and, the, and, and people around the world to solve this problem because we didn't create it. You know, we're also in a way victims of this problem because we're we're compelled um uh to use devices uh that are caked in blood um and it's not your fault it's not my fault it's not the fault of anyone listening to this uh podcast um but we can play a role in helping to to promote efforts to clean this up um and no, I don't think it's up to us to boycott and this. I don't think that's the solution. The solution is take the outrage that you're feeling right now as you listen to this conversation. And hopefully you'll dig around a little more and uh, maybe read my book or read some reports online or uh, whatever it is. Take all that outrage and first and foremost, spread it. Uh, in your communities, in your peer groups, um, uh, spread awareness of what's happening because as i said when the world finds out about a horror there's always enough people with compassion and drive and discipline um to, to address it it's always been that way throughout human history the first step is we have to know about the horror and so that's the work we're doing uh you and i in having this conversation me and going there and and writing my book other journalists who are covering these stories as best as they can um, bringing this truth to the world 
spread it, take all of that outrage and spread it every single day until eventually there will be a critical mass of people who know and are outraged and their sense of conscience and decency compels them to move forward on figuring out solutions. And, and then we'll get to that point. Then there will be a sufficient outcry um, where uh, an undeniable sequence of events is initiated that will ultimately culminate in the redress and repair uh, of all of the indignity, insult, injury, atrocity, and death that is taking place in the Congo so that you and I can function and so these companies can reap profits beyond measure. Amazing. Now, where can these guys, where can we direct these guys who want to dive a little deeper? Where can we direct them to find your book? When is it out? Where can they get it? And I know you said that this book isn't about yourself, but also where could they connect with you on social media if they want to hear more uh, from you and your message? Yeah, so uh, absolutely. My book uh, is Cobalt Red, um, how, to, how the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. It's uh, on uh, release January 31st, uh, but you can order it now uh, for a pre-sale anywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you know, any bookstore, online bookstore for now, and then it will be on shelves um, uh, within a couple of weeks. Um, so that's the easiest way to get my book. Um, I just, if you go online and just do, you know, Google Cobalt Congo, you know, th things are going to come up. Yeah. Um, uh, journalist stories, um, uh, reports, photos, and uh, uh, op-eds that I've written. And of course, my book is the first book that's just blowing this all open. That's the deepest ultimate truth. I take the reader on a journey through the provinces um, uh, to a place in time where I think the essential and final truth of cobalt mining is revealed. Uh, so the book is a journey um, that the reader will take uh, and probably at the end of it be more of an expert about cobalt mining than many of the people selling us phones and, and, and cars, for sure. Um, on social media, I'm not super active, but I'm on Twitter. Uh, and I just recently jumped on Instagram. Recently, I mean yesterday. Um, so you can find me there uh, as well. And I'm happy to interact with people. Um, uh, absolutely, because I'm trying to do everything I'm asking your listeners to do which is spread this truth far and wide i will link all that in the show notes below the social media the box every relevant link siddharth thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today like i said it's a different one than we usually do but i thought it'd be a really important one to do so i'm really grateful for your time and uh, for you sharing your story today oh my pleasure thank you uh for taking your time uh, and amplifying this story to your audience and to the world. Um, by doing so, uh, you have done something uh, very, very important for the people of the Congo. 